Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. That's right. Welcome, everybody, to Ask Dr. Drew. Do call now, and we're here again. We hope to share with, uh, we hope you will share this with your friends. And if you did sign up at drdrew.tv, you probably got an email or a text from us. Uh, we, I'll be taking calls intermittently, hopefully the first part of the show here. Second part of the show, I'm going to introduce my daughter to you, as well as Duncan Trussell, if you guys know Duncan Trussell. Uh, he is a long-standing friend of mine, and uh, he has a lot of interesting ideas about hallucinogens, which is what we're going to kind of focus on today. And in the second hour, I'm going to bring a psychiatrist in here who uses uh, psychedelics and hallucinogenics for for therapeutic purposes. And then Dave Navarro, a very special guest, may call in on that second hour with uh, some of his own ideas about all this and allow him to share that for you uh, and with you. Uh, we do also a daily show called um, Daily Dose, which is it's not quite it's not interactive the way this is, where I can take your calls. I can watch your comments, which I can do right now, by the way, and I am watching everybody. Uh, well done at the Jersey Shore. I see you all now. Duncan is awesome. Paulina, there's some uh, some nice comments for you as well. I can see your comments on Periscope, Facebook, Twitch, wherever you are. That's where we are, and I can see the comments there. But you can also call in. That number, of course, is 984-2-DR-DREW, 984-237-3739. And I'll try to take all the calls I can. Obviously, I've got a very packed show with material and guests and all. So I apologize if today I don't get as many guests on the phone as I like to. Uh, we are probably going to do a very special bonus show at the end uh, in a couple of hours and just take calls because I'm not going to get to a lot of calls, I suspect, uh, during this particular show. Even though it's called Ask Dr. Drew, we're not, you're not going to be asking Dr. Drew that, that much. I will get to some of you on hold right now. I see you, and I will try to get to The other thing is we do a show just like this, a streaming show on all the platform called Daily Dose. Usually we are midday, though sometimes we're doing it in the evening. We are going to be traveling a bit in the next few weeks, and when we travel, we will only do it on one platform. Uh, as it is, we're able to, if we're doing it from this studio, we're able to stream on Periscope and Facebook and Twitch and Mitchell and YouTube and everybody. But uh, when we go out on the road, we're probably just going to be doing Periscope. So if you want to find us, we will be on Periscope. Uh, Ms. Producer Susan Pinsky, will there be a blast out for the Periscope uh, well, we'll mention it on Twitter and Facebook. We just sign, go to Periscope and follow Dr. Drew, and then it'll just pop up as soon as we start it on your phone. All right. Uh, in addition, I want to thank our sponsors this week, courtesy of Sand Needle Destruction Devices. Go to needledestructiondevice.com. Get more details or click on the link at drdrew.com. 
Uh, we do appreciate the support of the sponsors that support this show. The needle destruction device, particularly for me, is a kind of a dream come true. I've been trying to figure out ways my entire career to eliminate needle sticks as a health issue. The needle destruction device that I am working with does that. You just put the needle in this device, it incinerates it, and it's no longer a biohazard. Everybody that deals with needles should have one of these devices. Check it out at needledestructiondevice.com. And also a thanks goes out to Social CBD for a limited time. You get 20% off at checkout with uh, drdrew.com slash socialcbd. Use the code drdrew at checkout. And also check out all of our podcasts at drdrew.com. Me and Adam do a show every day. I told you I'd be talking for a while about all this junk before I get to the show. Uh, also, Dr. Drew After Dark uh, at your mom's house. I know a lot of fans of that show are around, and we got a new tour coming up with Robert Paul Champagne. Epic, epic, epic. And as I said, sign up for this show. Um, we're going to try to do this regularly, as I said, and uh, we appreciate your support. We appreciate you being part of this. Uh, why don't I first uh, welcome uh, my very special guest, which is my daughter, Paulina Pinsky. Um, Paulina is a writer and can be found at Ms. Picky, M-I-Z-P-I-G-G-Y-1-1-1. Wow. Uh, her website is paulinapinski.com, where people can do what? Oh, so many things. Uh, you can read what I've written already, or you can sign up for my newsletter and keep track of what I'm up to. I tend to send a, a newsletter out every week, at least. Um, also on Medium. If you are interested in reading my pieces on Medium, I'd be exceptionally grateful medium do not do not confuse that with uh, calling out and mediums no 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 medium.com also uh also you can find her on instagram and twitter my mother producing me i love this yes m-i-z piggy and also uh your coaching and all that stuff tell them about that. yes i'm actually uh a writing coach so if you are interested in pursuing your craft and becoming a better writer i am available for one-on-one coaching Tell them about your pedigree so they can oh, they know yes. what they're getting. This so. is excellent. I love my parents so. like being like, more, more, more. Um, Wait, I, Paulina, first, could you put the mic a little closer to your mouth? Thank you. There we go. This is what it's like to be a to child be you. In People ask you, yeah, people, Stage ask, mama. people yes. ask what it's like to be you, and there it is. This is it. It's being heavily produced all the time. Anyways, <laughs> just stare into the camera. Um, so I have my MFA in nonfiction creative writing from Columbia University. I um, focus on essay writing and family writing. So uh, eventually I will be writing a book about our family. So get ready for that. Thank you. Get ready for that. Um, however, uh, I, um, I dabble in everything, uh, poetry, fiction, nonfiction. Um, ultimately, but the I, coaching is around that stuff. The too, coaching right? is yeah. around that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm primarily a nonfiction writer. However, I'm able to help in any sort of medium. Um, I would create a program specifically tailored to what you want to pursue. And Miss Producer, is it time to bring my other guest in here? Or do I do calls? Should I bring Duncan? Bring him in. Duncan Trussell. You know him from Drunk History, Comedy Tour, Joe Rogan Show, his podcast, Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Find him on Twitter, at Duncan Trussell, and at DuncanTrussell.com. Duncan, there you are, man. How's it going? Great. How are you? Good. Oh Can my god. Can you see me? Loud and clear. Everything is perfect. The the wow, mandala amazing. behind you looks amazing. That's the fa- the beautiful. Duncan Thank Trussell you. family. Tell tell them about the podcast first off. Uh it's just a uh we have conversations with I, I have conversations with spiritual teachers, Buddhists, Satanists, comedians. Satanists <laughs> <laughs> comedians go in one category and the spiritual advisors <laughs> in the other. Nice. Yes. Are, are you getting well, they all mix together sometimes. 
Are you getting weird feedback? I'm not getting feedback. Okay, good. I want to make sure you hear me clearly. Now, I fell in love with Duncan when he did one of the first uh, drunk histories on. Uh, it was actually a web series then, and he did a series on um, Tesla. Oh, Have you seen the Tesla? No, I haven't seen oh, it. Oh my God, Duncan Tesla. Yeah, that was I, that was amazing. I got really way too wasted on that one. I Derek, and I don't know if this is true or not. But because of my episode, they had to start hiring a nurse to do breathalyzers oh, wow. because I was, we didn't hey, Duncan, look at the alcohol on? content of absence. Uh, is your, is your phone yeah, that's, sign oh my God. Hang on a second. Is that my phone? <laughs> Un unbelievable. And I would just let my phone run during this. So sorry. Please, we solved the problem. I like that. I didn't know what it was coming from. I thought it was on your side. So... So, yeah, so watch the Tesla episode. You can find it on YouTube. It's just, it's unbelievable, and it's unbelievably accurate. I learned about Tesla from that episode. You, John C. Riley, who else was mm. in that one? Uh, uh, the guy from Crispin Back to Glover. The Crispin Glover. Oh, my God, it's such a great. And then I had the great honor of playing Derek Waters. Derek Waters is the mastermind behind Drunk History, of drinking with Duncan on his last yeah. Drunk History. Was that your last one, or have you done one since? No, I've done one since. Oh, I'm so but mad you guys didn't bring me into that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I didn't like it without you. It was that, you know, that was really a, one of the most surreal moments because I've been a fan of yours for before we became friends, but it's very an, an odd. You never think when you're thinking what might happen to you out here that you might end up getting hammered with Dr. Drew. So that was an, a really and, interesting and, and, night. And uh, talk about dolphins and weird ass experiments and LSD with dolphins, right? John Lilly. Yeah. Yeah. All that strange stuff, the dolphin experiments. Yeah. He was really, you know, the, what I heard though, is that he was more interested in ketamine than LSD actually. And that, and, and yes, isn't that fascinating? But uh, they don't mention that as much. He was uh, towards the end of his life. Apparently he was injecting ketamine into his uh, body like three or four times a day at least. Oh, my God. I, I'm not sure that's therapeutic. I'm just saying. That, that sounds a little more... No, I, no he, was trying to, he was trying to go home. Oh. Jeez. Well, so, so talk to me. Uh, um, we have recently lost Ram Dass, who I know was somebody that figured large in, in your thinking and, mm. and uh, some of the stuff you would talk about on your podcast. Talk, talk to me about your basic philosophy on hallucinogenics. Okay. Well, um, I, yeah, it's good to mention Ramdas because Ramdas and Tim Leary, it was originally his name was Richard Alpert. And um, they were in the forefront of studying psychedelics as a potential therapeutic tool. And so uh, in those days, it was so new that nobody really understood what it was. These were, you know, people who'd been studying psychology for so long and uh, suddenly here, these, these substances start popping up into the uh, mainstream a little bit that seem to give you a direct access to the subconscious. Some people speculated that it was a way to induce schizophrenia, which was very useful from a scientific perspective because Maybe by becoming, uh, quote, a lunatic, by becoming uh, psychotic, you could you could get an a, a insider's perspective on what some of your patients were going through. But then I think what started happening is that as they began to 
study these substances, they began to change, you know, and reevaluate their life purpose. And so that was when Alpert and Tim Leary got kicked out of Harvard and it was a big scandal. And then uh, it was a, 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 an interesting divergence that happened between the two because Tim Leary sort of maintained a kind of, uh, at least uh, the guise of scientific materialism, even though you might not think that about him. And uh, Alpert went to India and became uh, a seeker and met his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, came back here and wrote Be Here Now yes. and uh, oh, be became now. a great spiritual right teacher. Yeah, okay. Isn't it yeah, wonderful? It's it's transcendent. I mean, I read about a book a week and that book specifically has gripped me from my chest in my core and shaken me. Hmm. And wow. I think it's something that is really um, should be widespread now, especially in this moment in which everyone feels so dislodged from anything. You know, it feels like a very grounding mm. ideology to follow. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's a, a fantastic assessment of that book. And, you know, to get into the topic, what I think the topic is, uh, Ramdas told this amazing story. It was one of the big awakening moments in his life, which was he was uh, at a party. I think he was at a party with Tim Leary and like Alan Watts, you know, all these like 60s, like intellectuals and thought leaders, and they were taking synthetic psilocybin. and. Uh, Ramdas goes and sits on a couch because he's beginning to really trip out. And he starts thinking about the things that he loves, you know, his status, being a, you know, handsome, respected Harvard professor, all the identity points that he was really connecting to. And something about this trip, they just started blinking out. You know, these these aspects of his identity that were what he considered to be him. And so as he tells this wonderful story about how essentially he gets to some core Richard Alpertness and then looks down at his body and his body starts disappearing. And at that point, he had to deal with this. I don't know what you would call it, a non bodily identified consciousness that was outside of his personality, outside of his ego. And he was trying to understand that from like a, a perspective of Western psychology. What and is so, this? And so people now talk about that in, in the realms of mindfulness and meditation too, as, as sort of either b pure being or awareness of awareness. Does that make yes, sense? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, fundamental goodness is another name for it. You know, some kind of like, it's like uh I don't know if, if this is a really dumb example, but maybe it's a little bit like wiping all the apps off your phone. If, in this case, the phone is your identity and the apps are all the various things that you use to contextualize and understand your reality. When all that stuff gets lifted away, a lot of people experience some uh, relief, you know, neurotic people in particular experience well, some relief so, from that. And so this is where you and I always end up, right? Which you have with these interesting, what are potentially therapeutic uh, sort of modalities and interventions and observations. And then what I go to as a physician is, but we don't know the risk. And so when we start talking about changing fundamentally who a person is, you're talking about changing their brain. And that always scares me as something that mm. 
you know, either we don't have a much control over, we don't know the longer term consequence. I've seen severe problems from people who use a lot of hallucinogens. Is a little a problem? We just really don't know yet. How much is? Yeah, that's lot? true. We don't know what a lot is. That's part of the problem. I, I by a lot, I, I mean, I, I took care of people that uh, were in famous rock bands in the '60s and were doing lots of it every day, and uh, ended up in nursing homes because they were so impaired, uh, and impaired in kind of a global, strange way. Like it wasn't strictly cognitive; they just became unable to sort of take care of themselves. Very, well, you know, very I think strange. one of the problems with those examples, I think, is that especially if you're talking about rock stars, is you're dealing with so many different substances, so many different uh, experiences that those substances are, are being used within. Who yeah. knows how many of, of it is, how much, a lot of the damage is from speed, cocaine. Uh, these are really speed alcohol. Sure. But, but you know, wait, yep, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, alcohol in massive amounts over a long period of time will do exactly the same thing. Speed does something a little different. Speed causes mood problems and, and memory problems. Cocaine causes strokes, so it doesn't really cause the kind of damage we see with the other two. And then you're in the hallucinogenic class, you know, which one and which one does what. We don't, you know, probably psilocybins are much safer than LSD, probably. But what was it you said? Who knows what? That That's the bottom line. Who knows? That's the that's the, the problem. Right. That's I know as a doctor, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get yeah. a psychiatrist in here in 45 minutes, and I'm going to try to talk to her who's using some of this stuff and see what, what she says. So it, it'll be interesting. Well, now you, you know. Go ahead. Oh, God, sorry. No, uh, no, I you. think one important like, you know, for me, I love psychedelics. They, uh, I respond well to psychedelics. I enjoy them. I use them recreationally. I use them spiritually. I don't use them as much as I used to, though. I've, I've sort of, um, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I feel like I've gotten a lot from them. I use them every once in a while. And also, I know the ones I do, that don't go well. I'm not, you know, honestly, I'm not a big fan of mushrooms. I don't like them mm. uh, as compared to like LSD or some of the other uh that's, that's psychedelics the out there that's really weirdly the opposite of what most people say right well yeah so it's a it's a hilarious you i always know i'm in the right place <laughs> if i find myself talking about mushrooms versus lsd like i'm talking about sports teams you know because then i'm with <laughs> i'm with a future friend you know that's a cool thing to get in an oh, argument about how but are the chiefs I have, doing anyway <laughs> yeah i, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist you. and yeah. he uh and he does psychedelic medicine and he is really passionate about getting the message out there that it's called psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, I think I and know the you're psychotherapy talking about. He's a psychologist, part. not a psychiatrist though, this guy, right? What's that? This guy's a psychologist. Well, he, psychologist my friend's a psychiatrist. You sure? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I never looked at his. <laughs> well, people get that very confused, and it is a very different kind of a perspective. And I do know a bunch of psychologists that are using exactly what you're talking about and claim great, great results with trauma, particularly, which is one of the great challenges in, in psychological therapies, right? Yeah, that's right. And yeah, anyway, regardless of his credentials, but I'm yeah. positive he is. The okay. the what what I love about what he says is. What's wonderful about what's happening right now is that the genie's out of the bottle. They've allowed a lot of studies to happen yes, with psilocybin, MDMA, yes. ketamine. They're getting great results, and they're finding out what parts of the brain it affects, what are yes. the optimal doses. Some of the they're optimal doses are That's not right. what you would think. And right. but the the main but one of the things he's worried about is that we're going to suddenly have this new class of pseudo shaman slash psychologist person 
who starts popping up, imagining that they can uh, administer psilocybin and or, or, give the or ayahuasca or, or whatever and that stuff. Yeah, that, that's yeah. another the whole thing. Well, that's really interesting. I worry about that too, right? Because it is not sort of there's not guidelines for it yet, mm -hmm. so people can do whatever they want. That's right. right. Exactly. That's the I mean, I'm an old man now. I'm, I've got a kid now. So I'm I'm not like I used to be, which is like just nitrous and acid together. You'll see the matrix, man. <laughs> now I'm more like, you know, it, it, I, and again, I'm not trying anybody who loves these things there to me there. Terrence McKinnis said he feels sorry for people who've never taken a psychedelic in the way he would feel sorry for someone who's never had sex. It's a fundamental human experience and it's glorious and i agree with him wholeheartedly but when we start talking about what's happening now everyone forgets the hard work that goes into going to a psychologist right. and the like the amount of time you have to put in and the right. deep work you have to do on yourself right. to get in inside where the trauma is so to, to get opened up enough and and to get the tools you need so that when the psychedelic experience is being administered you can, um, it you're trained up, so to speak, and yeah. the yeah. the real healing can happen in that. And they're finding out that the combination of these two things, which underground psychologists have known for a long time, really has spectacular results in treating not just PTSD, but depression, marriage issues, and addiction. I'm sure you know about all that. Though. Yeah, and again, I I know about it in in sweeping, vague terms because I hear anecdotes. No published data yet, and, and we'll have it soon, as you say. The genie's out of the bottle. We'll have it someday, and and I'm I'm fascinated to see how that works. And so we're talking about ayahuasca and ibogaine for addiction. We're talking about MDMA for relationships. We're talking about psilocybin and LSD for end of life dread. Which that's clearly mm. where they have data right now. By the way, they they have oh, really? data that shows yes, they show that if if you are having horrible anxiety around a terminal prognosis, it really helps things. It really does. And and who cares what the long-term effects are in that case, right? I mean, right. We, don't, we don't have to worry about, you know, is, are there going to be uh, cognitive difficulties five years down the line? If you have six months to live, who cares? We're just trying right. to help that person deal with that. Um, but you you always used a metaphor for, to me. Sorry, Paulina, we're, we're just going on here. We're old No, buddies. no, no. So, yeah, uh, Paulina, really like sorry. Home, you know? <laughs> so. White men talking, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. You're right, though. That is what it's we're true. doing. It we're is. not. The camera's not even on your daughter. Something. I was like, I'm here. Go ahead. Uh, but also, I don't know if you want me to confess uh, what my opinions are. Go ahead. You know? Go ahead. Then, yeah. um, I will say I did uh, mushrooms in Amsterdam. I watched a lily die and rebloom before my eyes. And wow. that sort of... Duncan, whoa. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> but I also was able to look at my life as a full narrative. And I was able to see what my purpose is and sort of kind of... It cemented the moment that I... I was in graduate school at the time and I was in Amsterdam, so life was good. Um, so I think because I was in a p place where I was safe and I was in a stable mind space, I was able to engage with the psychedelic in a way that was actually spiritually fulfilling. And mm -hmm. I think um, more than anything, I, I kind of have a problem with uh, using things unintentionally just for entertainment, especially when it mm -hmm. comes to psychedelics. Um, having an intention, which it makes me feel very new age, but acting with intention, you're able to manifest something for yourself, right? And so mm. if you go into a psychedelic experience with the intention of self-exploration and healing, it can be a very, very spiritual and grounding process, in my experience at least. How has it helped your, you with writing and creativity? Have you noticed any, have you ever used it for that? 
maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is like low-key my teenage nightmare uh, playing out, being on my father's podcast talking about drug uh, use, but right. here we are. We, we, no, no, there's, there's, a, there's a meta level to this, though, you'd never imagine, which was Duncan is doing the interviews. That's the part. <laughs> that's the part. <laughs> that's the part that uh, puts a real flavor to this whole thing. So go ahead, you guys. Yeah. Uh, for creativity, uh, I... Well, so actually, um, my first manic episode, which I had summer of 2017, kind of cracked open my creativity. Do you think that was related to the substances? No. Um, How do you know? I was on an antidepressant and the dosage was too high. And so it was a reaction to actually my antidepressants. Um, But during that period of time, I discovered painting, which sounds so ridiculous. But it was this pure, unadulterated expression that wasn't... I mean, I'm I'm a trained dancer, I'm a trained singer, I'm a trained writer. So it was the only sort of medium in which I didn't feel restricted in. Um, and so that being said, uh, I have dabbled in high psychedelics and painted. And everything sort of takes on this sort of spiritual iconography unintentionally. Um, I, I actually have pieces... F- I have pieces for sale on my website if you were interested, mm. anyone. Um, but all of all of my art um, feels like channeling in a certain way, and psychedelics sort of allow me to channel more. Like, I, I believe that I'm channeling more. So l- let me get to from that to Duncan's uh, metaphor. Not the metaphor so much as his description of how – maybe you've changed your mind, Duncan, I don't know, but you always talked about this – way you thought psychedelics should be used as the, the that elevator metaphor remember that oh yeah well that that's actually that was something ramdas would talk about because you know they were they they in the, those days this was before the war on drugs this is before like the deep conditioning that the state the voodoo conditioning the state has put in so many different people's brains regarding all drugs and yeah. and they really did think that they had found a like a nootropic uh, that was going to potentially transform society in a matter you're, of you're, years. You're talking back now to, uh, uh, what's his name? Alpert and Alpert. Leary, Alpert yeah. And Leary. Leary. Leary was one that really championed that stuff. But and Alpert way, was... Let me, let me just say, though, but let me just say, uh, and this this really bugs me a little bit, the, the job of a psychologist or a psychiatrist is the clinical care of a patient. It is not transform society. And a lot of horrors have been done by psychiatry in the name of transforming society. Uh, trust me, that, that's all history that's being acted out on, on our streets. That's where homelessness came from. I, I can, well, I'll talk more about that in maybe a little while. Oh, my but, God. I mean, even in, un, unintentionally, these experiments, yes. I mean, look up Kaczynski oh. was at Harvard. Yes. He was subject to these crazy, uh, at the time it wasn't the CIA, it was the OSS. Yeah. Yes. But this, I can't remember his name, a professor at Harvard was, was blasting the, at, Kaczynski. At the Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky Center, the treatment center in Kentucky. Is that where it was? I'm confused about it. I think what? it was at Harvard. No, I think Kaczynski. they went down to Kentucky. For, but anyway, they, they oh, were, they they, took, there was horrible stuff. They took stuff the Unabomber down to Kentucky. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah so, yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the fascinating things about these substances is, and especially back then, um, they changed the observer. So... You know, if 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 you want to get into them as a from a scientific perspective, and you become the subject, then you will begin to transform. And if you don't have the right uh, 
group of people around you, if you're a narcissist, if you know, if you're manic, if you're whatever, then it can it can inflame that narcissism. And then next thing you know, you think you're Jesus. I mean, this right. is a classic, you know, I'm sure how many times have you had someone call you up, Dr. Drew, and tell you that they think they're the Christ or that they're going right, to change right. the world but, but and they're again, in a big but, hurry. Right. And when people, and usually that's all kinds of psychiatric conditions, but if somebody has something like that induced by a chemical, I, I worry what we're doing to their brains and it makes me worried about everybody who uses these things. So that, that And not to say that that negates therapeutic value. There's always risk with any substance that people ingest for a therapeutic purpose. We just don't know yeah. this one yet. But finish the elevator metaphor, if you would. Oh yeah. So that. So anyway, what I only brought that up because they were taking vast quantities of these substances, and with LSD, the your tolerance goes up r really quickly. That's true. They so it every you, day, right? Every I, day I, they were drinking it. They were drinking it. So that's the level that they and they were. You know, Leary was reporting going back into his DNA. Um, uh, and you know, going into his ancestral roots and stuff. But what was ha what they were realizing, and and Alpert was really good at articulating this, is that no matter what, you still have to come down. So he compared it to this elevator. You, it's like taking an elevator to this heightened state of consciousness. You experience, you know, universal consciousness. You experience uh, merging with the totality of all things. You experience a kind of beautiful, harmonious connection to nature, but then you come down. Inevitably, you come down. And when you come down, you're back in the world. The, 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 from their experiments, one of the sayings that emerges, who's going to do the dishes? Because somebody <laughs> right. can't, you know, someone's got to right. do the dishes. That's right. Someone's got to, you know, and, and so this was where the big split happened with Alpert and Tim Leary. It wasn't a split. They stayed friends for their entire lives. But Alpert realized that the psychedelics were not going to keep you high permanently, high in the positive sense, in the sense of being, you know, no longer uh, engrossed in the story of you and the implicit selfishness that goes along with being human. He uh, wanted a way to have more a more permanent effect that was probably a little less chaotic. And so that that's he went to India with LSD and started giving it to meditators to find out what they thought it was. But yeah, his thing is you can go up on the elevator, but you always got to come back down. And, and, a, and, and, a, and I would argue that a meditative uh, discipline would be one of the ways to get control over that elevator, right? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly. A more, it's a, it's just a more, um, well, I, you holistic, know, sometimes I think holistic, call it I mean, holistic. They're, they're, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm not trying to create some hierarchy between psychedelics and spirituality, which is a, yeah. there's a, actually, I think sometimes a rift in between the psychedelic community and the spiritual community. The psychedelic community sometimes thinks the spiritual community is just like passive, doing spiritual bypass, fooling themselves. When, you know, it, it, Terrence McKenna used to say, um, tell this story to, about a, it's like a, a guy was studying with a guru and he, went off into the forest and meditated for 15 years and came back to his guru now capable of walking on water. And so he showed off to his guru. He's like, I have 15 years of discipline. Now I can walk on water. And his guru said, the ferry costs a nickel, you know? And so that was McKenna's idea with mushrooms is listen, what? Sure. Go ahead. 
go to the go go to Dharamsala, go to the Himalayas, go into the jungles, meditate for 20 years, gain some endogenous psychedelic capacity, but I can buy five dried grams of psilocybin and instantaneously communicate with hyperdimensional entities. And so this is where a rift is between these two communities. But in my old age, I think I just don't have time to do well, six I, but, hour mushroom but, trips. But, <laughs> but, but more importantly, you've, you've founded the grounding that they're talking about these, these philosophers, which is what's important is taking care of your daughter, do the parent yeah. and get, get yeah. the diapers changed, get the food, get, get, that is do, exactly do, right. do the dishes. Forrest and, is his son. What's a son? I beg your pardon. Are we going to throw a picture up of your child? By the way, she's so he's so. Cute we can't. Right we don't put his picture up. Oh, he's so cute. Uh, all right, Thanks. here's the deal. Uh, I I want to now thank you for all that. Are, are we all three sort of? We sort of. I think it's. I I heard that you would meditate with Ram Dass, and I think that's really cool. Right? Is that true? Is that a rumor yeah. that I heard? That's fair. Well, yeah, I got really lucky. I I did get to. Yeah, we, we go to these retreats and hang out with them and all all the wonderful people that would come there. And it's, it's yeah, I got really lucky. And in Hawaii? I, yeah. Well, yes, in Hawaii. Oh. Let me just say, okay, Miss Pinsky. Yes, sir. Uh, I, now that I'm feeling uh, jealous of Mr. Duncan, let me tell you what your father did, which is that he got to know oh. Ram Dass's niece, who's a documentarian. And oh. we went out and tried to create a documentary about the therapeutic uses of hallucinogens with wow. Ram Dass featured in it. And nobody would wow. do it. Look at dad flexing. No, nobody would do it, which was cool. very disappointing. Cool we, thought, we thought it was a layup because people are interested in this stuff. Yeah. But uh, Sasha Alpert and I went out and tried to, to pitch this thing. And for whatever reason, we couldn't get it done. Isn't that weird? Well, maybe mm. now's the time with the Ram Dass documentary coming out on Netflix. I watched. There's, there's it. a whole bunch yeah. of them out yeah. there. There's a whole bunch of Ram Dass documentaries, though, and, and I I don't know if it's a I don't know what it is, frankly. And uh, well, to me, it's fascinating stuff, and uh, I, I don't know why the average person isn't isn't terribly interested in it. But uh, Duncan, uh, well, I'm going to go to some calls. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit here for a few minutes. Cool. Uh, before I do, uh, anything coming up on your podcast? We should be aware of other topics than hallucinogenics. Oh, well, I mean, it, it varies week to week. You never know. I mean, sometimes who's, who's we're talking up? about What's manifestation. Uh, sometimes we're talking about magic. I just interviewed Ian Edwards, who's just a brilliantly funny comic. You're coming up on the podcast mm -hmm. soon. And we've got a show coming out on Netflix that is based on the podcast that you're in. And it's so, uh, funny. It's so, yeah. it's so much fun. Tell, let him tell you yeah, what it is. It's I can't wait for you to see it. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's um, it's like one giant acid trip. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, spent spent a few couple of weeks in the sound booth with Duncan. It was so much fun, man. It was really good. Yeah, time. it was the best. That was so and, fun. And, I, it and was and you have an, a, had an amazing team of creative people there. I mean, they were just so thank you. Oh my god, yeah, well, they were so honest. Pendleton Ward from Adventure Time. He created Adventure oh. Time. He's a he's an authentic genius. He, he started uh, talking to me, and my and I'm like, "Who is that guy? What does he? How does he know what that? You know, he knew exactly what he wanted all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it, was it was magic. It was so yeah. fun. Thank you so much for doing it, Doctor oh, Drew. Really, it was just so cool me. to I can't, get can't to work to with you. That. Turns out it's going to be uh, um, startling to people. I suspect. So let's. I I have a call. I've been home for quite the hope so. But a gentleman, uh, I believe he's a veteran and has a question for us. Uh, let's get into this. Ethan, thank you for waiting. What's going on? Hey, Drew, thanks for taking my call. Um, big fan. I've 
loved you on Love Line. I love all the stuff you're doing with your mom's house. Uh, so this is awesome. Uh, my question is a couple. I don't know, a couple of months ago, I heard you on Fox News discussing the homeless problem, and you were uh, very adamant and explaining to people that it's not a housing uh, crisis, it's a mental health issue. And I right. and I agree with you, but I also think that housing is an issue. And I, and sure. I want to know, you know, how you propose or how you would solve this problem. Like, how do you give someone that's homeless that needs, okay. you so, know, so maybe me, medication me, or therapy? Yeah, how, so, how, how do you do so, that if they have no place of residence? Well, let me just frame that there are... There are billions of dollars on the sidelines ready to go to help people. They just don't know what to do with it yet. And the federal government, the city, and the county, at least down here in Southern California, all have more than enough space and enough environments in which to take care of people. They just have to the, – the problem is, and this is the problem – the people, we're not talking about the transitly homeless. There are people that are down on their luck and are economically distressed and end on the streets. The average duration on the street for that population is three months. We're talking about the chronically homeless who are dying at the rate of three a day on the streets of Los Angeles today. Three will die while we're sitting here talking. That's the part that makes me crazy. And that group is largely a resistant population. They suffer from something called anisognosia, which is a block in the ability to understand what's happening to them as a result of their illness or seeing the illness or seeing how the illness operates. It's a feature of the illness. For instance, when you go out, one of the things about drug addicts on the street, uh, only 10% of them ever get treatment, 10%. And when you go out and interview that 90% that doesn't get treatment, you ask them, why don't you get treatment? Why don't you access what's available? 80% of them, 80% of the 90% say, why would I? I don't need treatment. What's, what, what's the problem? Uh, I just, they want to keep doing it. That's, that's part of the addiction. Same thing is true of schizophrenia and certain states of bipolar. It's anisognosia, and we have privileged that to the point we are privileging that to the point that we are allowing people or committing them to die. So we need to have an environment of care for sure. I would look, urge everybody to look at something called the Trieste Plan, which is a community-based vocational rehab, largely outpatient. By the way, some people could be treated from their tents if we had outpatient treatment, and they very quickly would not want to be in their tents anymore once they once they get the treatment going. So, you know, it's the prioritization. Sorry, could you say that again? What program that is? Trieste, Trieste plan, Trieste, Italy. Everyone sort of Trieste. points to that as that's the model for what we should be doing for homeless. And I, I probably know. Look, it's all psychiatric hospital. It's all one version or another of a psychiatric of a of a of a well-run psychiatric hospital. And the problem is, people don't want it. That's the problem. Uh, the L.A. County supervisors went out with a bank of showers for homeless, and they found that to get one homeless person into one shower, it took an average of fourteen contacts. That's just showering. There is an illness there yeah. creating that block, and we are ignoring that and allowing people to die. If it was dementia causing that block, we would be rushing in to treat these people. But because it's schizophrenia causing it or drug addiction, well, you can't touch them. And that's insane. And I've been to Sacramento. John Morlock has been to Sacramento twice with family members galore who have resources and they want to bring their loved one home and get them care for and get a place to live and feed them. And the state of California told them to effing take a hike. Take a hike. We're not going to help you. That is that is bizarre. That is beyond catastrophe. And that's the stuff that makes me crazy. So that's the shorthand version of it. Um, 
I gave a lecture on C-SPAN where I talk about the history of how we get into this. If you want to see that, the whole lecture is there. So I'll be up in Sacramento, by the way. In Thank week. you, Drew. All right, man. A week from – and by the way, you're, you're a veteran, True, Is that true, Ethan? I am. That is true. I was uh, yeah. in the Navy for five years. Thank, thank you for your service. Um, and thank, thank you for your service. Li- li- I'm telling you, li- li- being on the ship, listening to you and uh, all your podcasts with Adam and Drew shows, kept me sane so well all the and and duncan too i'm a fan of his you know the, the military thanks, members love the podcast so awesome hey what, hey what do you think about the ufos the navy picked up <laughs> duncan <laughs> Man, it's true record you know scratch. what i'm talking look yeah, it up. They, they, go ahead let's see what he says ethan wait i uh, sorry the usos ufos, UFOs. they i didn't the, hear the, those oh the okay. US, dude I, I haven't heard that yet but i'm I'm down to hear about some aliens, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, for aliens. Well, no. Listen, All right, man. Thank, thank you for your service, and thank you for the focus on the veterans. A lot of number of the veterans that are on the streets have neurological yes, issues. Again, yes, exactly. Neurological issues that you can't see on the surface that are being neglected. And again, that's neglect. That is not allowing people to live how they want to live. That's neglect. And no other country neglects sick people. We do that. It's ridiculous. Sorry. Listen, all I have to say is if we're on a planet and we're life forms, and we're sentient beings. Who's to say that there aren't aliens on other planets? Yeah, but will they be carbon-based? They selenium. Why? Why do you? Why are you? What are you? Some kind of carbon bigot? I, what do you I care? Car- what do you I care? What they're made based. out of? Wait, wait, I'm, I'm more than a bigot. I'm car- I'm a carbon uh, apologist. I'm a carbon uh, because carbon. <laughs> Carbon, because carbon has really special properties that give that allow life to exist. You got to understand that, and whether or not but other on this planet, not on another. Planet. Well, that's the question. Can other sort of uh, unique molecules uh, have their own sort of form of life out of them, or did carbon form somewhere else and just do the same thing, just create a different kind of a trajectory of life? We don't know. I'm open to it. Hey, Duncan, what about uh, who? What was the guy that? Uh, was picked up in Las Vegas and taken in by the CIA to look at this special spacecraft. Uh, Bob, what's his name? Bob something? Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar. Now, here's my – there's a documentary on Netflix about Bob Lazar. Paulina, you know about Bob Lazar? Nope. Okay, Bob Lazar was a physicist, short strokes, very short, picked up by uh, the government and swept into this uh, Area 51, right? Isn't that where he went? I think yeah. so, yeah. And he there he saw a spacecraft, and the spacecraft had these four or five units that were these cesium molecules that don't exist on this planet, and they created their own gravitational field so this, yeah. and so this aircraft could move on its own all over the place, and he saw it fly. My question about Bob Lazar, I believe everything he says. Here's the problem. Me too. Okay, here's the problem. Me three. Okay, here's the problem. Uh, this is, and he was he was put in a room with some other guy named Larry, right? Am I getting the name right? Wasn't it Larry? And Larry, I don't and, yeah, I think it's Larry. So Larry and Bob were the guys who were given the most important observation in the history of physics. Like we're going to hand over the most important thing that's ever been observed by humanity to Bob. We're not going to bring in Princeton physicists and Caltech physicists. We're going to give it to Bob and Larry. I think the whole thing was one of the government's uh, psychology experiments mm-hmm. that they used to do on people all the time. And in this mm-hmm. case, they wanted to see how foreign governments would look at deconstructing technologies like our own. And they just observed Bob and Larry and sort of challenged them with all these crazy things mm-hmm. and saw how their brains work as a way of hiding technologies of our own. 
Huh. So wait, you think it was like an MK Ultra experiment or Not something? Not MK Ultra. Like MK Ultra is what you were more what you were talking about. That that all went down at the Kentucky environment you were just talking about with the LSD and stuff. No, I think it was just the military doing experiments on humans the way they used to do it. They just That's used right. to do that. We they used to. I love that people think they used to. Well, what's yeah, happening? Say, what's happening now? Uh, what's who knows? Now? Oh yeah. no, no, yeah. you, you guys, there are. There are laws and standards, and yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're following those please. laws. You're, you're right. I mean, they may do it in other countries or something, but I don't think they. That's do it right. Anymore. They must. I mean, there's it's it's such a vast network. It's such a there's a lot of it is so mysterious and so deeply classified. Who knows? Now Who knows what's like, going on? Now you're standing like a paranoid person, Duncan. Careful. I mean, how? What are do you mean? What? Why would you people? say that? Are you trying to kill me? <laughs> 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 Go ahead, Pauline. What are you saying? Oh, I forgot. Nope. But ultimately, uh, Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. Old people, I thought. No, 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 no. Good. No, I'm no, so no, happy. No. Uh, <laughs> at twenty, at the ripe age of twenty-seven, I feel like an old person. Not, not. Maybe it's the hallucinogens you did. I'm just concerned. So <laughs> <laughs> you're in trouble. You're, no was trouble. Doctor Drew, is this a trick do to get, get Paulina to do, fess up that she's been I taking psychedelics <laughs> all the time? I feel trapped. By the way, it worked. Number one, <laughs> and number two, do I? Do I? Am I less of a friend to you because of what you're experiencing? Right. Well, what do you I mean? mean? I think you. I, do I judge you? Do I? Do I? Am I less of a friend of yours? No, I don't no. think so. I, I respect you. your POV. You're a doctor. You can't tell people to go galloping off into the fields and take their clothes off and coat themselves with pagan honey and have wonderful mushroom orgies and powerful orgasms and don't connect with the, the moon glitter. and regain their soul and glitter bomb <laughs> the world with joy. You're a doctor. You can't do that. We we get to do that. We get to I, say. I like the way I, I can't. I can't create happiness. Thank you, Duncan. Uh, you can create <laughs> happiness. You just can't prescribe mushroom orgies yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, all right, you guys are both overwhelmed me. I don't know where to go from here. Read some of the comments. Do you have your restream up? I, I am looking at them, and a lot of them like my theory Oof. about uh, Ed Lazar. Was that his name Ed Lazar? Yeah. Um, that was Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar, yes. I beg your pardon. Uh, yes, reverse engineering of flying saucers is what they were sort of asked to do. And to me, that's like, and they never really did it. And there was a lot of missing information that they, that I didn't make sort of a sense from a physics standpoint, even though it was an interesting story. And I thought, they're just probably deconstructing technology, and they just want to see how humans do that. And that because that's all classified, that's why we don't ever hear what was actually happening to it. All right, anyway. Well, I mean, you know, Rogan had him on the show. Yeah, I talked I to interview. Joe, and he's I and he it. said the guy is, like, completely on the level. One yeah. of the things he said he kept saying is, I'm not making any I, – I, he doesn't do paid appearances or something. No, I like, know. His, I know. he's not – he's clearly not profiting from the, the, the notoriety he's gotten from uh, exposing whatever the hell this thing was. And now that we're seeing these new crafts that are appearing – uh, that you know the that seem to be defying or at least uh, operating according to a, an understanding of physics that isn't our understanding of physics. It makes me think maybe he did see something. Maybe they figured out how to reverse engineer. Maybe it wasn't an alien craft. It was just some cutting edge technology that they wanted to show. I don't know. Agreed. 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 Let's get uh, some calls in here. This is uh, Chad. Hey. Oh my goodness. Hey, Chad. Go ahead. Chad. Hey, hey, what's up, Dr. Drew? Thanks for uh, having me on, man. You bet. Uh, so I'm a veteran as well, which I just listened to Ethan. But um, Thank so you I've so been 
active. I've been an active addict for probably 17 years now. What drug? Um, excuse me? What substance is it? Um, mainly opiates. Um, but, you know, once you get to a certain point, it's pretty much whatever will get you high to check out and become numb, really. Right. So I'm guessing we're talking, um, we're talking about heroin meth? The combo we're into, uh, yeah, pretty much. Okay, that, it seems to be more of that these days than yeah, anything else. Right. Yeah. That's, what I, that's what it sounds like. Okay, heroin meth, got it. You- um, but I've also been through a substance abuse uh, treatment nine times through a VA hospital with no success. Um, I think the longest period of sobriety that I've had is, or I don't even call it sobriety, clean time would be maybe. 20 days, 25 days. What's the lo- what's the longest period of time? Hang on, hang on. What's the longest period of time you stayed in a structured environment? Like a halfway house, that kind of thing. Well, I had to do what they call the alpha program when I was incarcerated. And that was a four month therapeutic community where you had to, uh, you know, have affirmations daily. You had structured routine daily. How'd you do? Uh, which you how was also you, an incarcerated environment. I, right. I understand you were mandated to it, but how'd you do there? Actually, really good. I right. came out very positive, had right. a good outlook. Right, right. So hold on. And hey, within on. And two weeks. One. Yeah, I'm sure. And so were you on Suboxone at that at that time, or have you been on sustained Suboxone or something like that? I have. I had before in the past, but uh, being incarcerated, there is no maintenance medication or nothing like that it's right. complete okay so here's here's Absolutely. here's the bottom line on uh first of all thank you for your service number one number two uh you've i would look at this as you've only been treated nine times uh bob forrest who you know i work with all the time needed 24 treatments and he feels like every single one of those was an important process in getting him to ultimate sobriety but with your story there are two big things that need to be done and and i'm sorry you may not like this one is, I think, replacement therapy for you is a, is a real option. So something like low dose of Suboxone would be a good idea. Number two, four months isn't long enough. Opiate addiction, it's often one to two years of structured living for people really to kind of get it. So you've done good. You've done good for periods of time. I would look all this as part of the process. You've been successful. You've tried things. You know what works. Now let's take it all the way. Let's get into an environment that you can stay in for a year. Let's get on some low dose replacement therapy of some type. Uh, and I'm imagining PTSD and other traumas are figuring in there. And once you've been stabilized, that kind of thing can also get treated. All right, man. Thanks so much. Uh, Duncan, any comments? No, I mean, what a nightmare it is to get hooked on opiates. My well, God. I always think today, about that. that it is. No, go ahead. Sorry. Today, today, the meth combo is it, it's almost ubiquitous. People are using meth with the heroin and the meth is what makes things almost untreatable. It's such a horrible drug, and and it's it's just speedballs. Well, speedballs traditionally were cocaine and heroin. Now they're speed and heroin, and it's just it's just the worst combination. It makes people extraordinarily difficult to treat. I did meth once. Yeah, congratulations. It was horrible. Mm. It was the worst. It was off. I mean, for a second, I felt like I was a divine being, but then the crash from it was the way. This is what happened. I did it. It was so dumb, like math. And I don't even know why I was just, I should never have done it, but I wanted to see what it was like. You know, everyone's talking about it, but I ended up walking out of my friend's place at 10 AM feeling like I'd had the best night's sleep. 
mm. like completely rested. I hadn't slept at all. Mm. Took a cab home, got home, cleaned my house, got all this, got, got stuff done. And then I can't even explain the crash. It was, I've done so many psych, I've done so many psychedelics. I have never experienced a crash like that. Right. The deepest instantaneous depression. Yeah. It felt like someone had taken a saw blade to my brain. I couldn't think. And I, you know, it was, it lasted days. It was and, and horrible. Gu and guess horrible. what, Duncan, if you're an addict, what are you going to do? You're going to run for another hit. Right. Right. And yeah. if you do that over even a few weeks, it affects your thinking. The paranoia starts to develop. You become more resistant to treatment and guidelines. It, it, it makes things, and the, and the ultimate, if you do it long enough, which sometimes isn't that long, you get severe paranoid preoccupations and bizarre delusions with the focus on people close to you, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. It's so difficult. No kidding. Hey, Dad. Yeah. I've never done math. Congratulations. Thank that's you. Good. That's good. It's a relief. One you haven't done. It's <sighs> that's not true. <laughs> I've done math with Paulina. She's the one who gave it to me, Dr. Drew. Up, <laughs> I didn't Duncan. want to either. She bullied me. See, she's bad. She bullied me into it. <laughs> well, some part of you is evil, Duncan. I know that. I know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, some part of all of us is evil, isn't it? I guess Dr. that's true. That's I true. guess that's true. I that's guess that's true. true. All right, man. I, I'm going to let you go. I wish you know. I wish we had. I, Caleb, I should have thought of this. We don't. I want to play uh, at least part of his Tesla uh, appearance uh, on Drunk History. Do we have any way of doing that? Probably not. We can't do that. Oh, Is there I, a link? I want to watch it later. Oh, right. yeah. There's all a right. link we'll, on drdrew.com. We'll I put a link up to Tesla particularly, and maybe also okay. the dolphin one that you and I did. Cool. And, and then hysterical. here's the deal, my friend. Next time, you are not allowed to do Drunk History without me being there, or at least being... Deal. Uh, well, next, time, next time, I want to be an actor in one of your episodes. Yes, that would be awesome. I would like for us to be actors in somebody yes. else's story. That would be cool. <laughs> yes. Paulina, yes. what a joy to meet you. It's, uh, it's really nice to meet you. You're amazing. Thanks for having me on your show, Dr. Drew. Uh, it's, it's always a blast to get to hang out with you. Let's get dinner again sometime. Yeah, all right, dinner. You and me and Pete Holmes again. Yeah. Okay, cool. Can I come? That awesome. was fun. You can yes, come. please come. And, okay. And, and um, you're, we'll do your show. You, you email me. We'll set up a time. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate right. it. Okay. Thanks Goodbye. a lot, y'all. Lovely Goodbye, to meet you. Love you, Duncan. You. We love Love Duncan. you back. Oh my, oh Thanks, y'all. Yes. Love you guys. So, uh, uh, Mr. Producer, why don't we break a little early here? Yes. Uh, we'll come back and take some calls. And yes, one of the, we have we have a doctor on the Psychiatrist. Line. Oh, is she on the line already? Right. Yes. Okay, good. She's actually uh, waiting and ready to go. Great. So we'll say, let's break now. Uh, I do want to get to some of your calls. And by the way, those of you that are on hold. Call I, in. I, well, I do plan. We are, as I said, going to have a bonus episode at the end here where I'm just going to do calls. 984-2-DR-DREW. Yeah. And uh, let's take a little break. We all need a little breather. Uh, be right Ask back. me questions. Right back. <laughs> be right back. <laughs> The CBD industry is still pretty much the Wild West. When it comes to claims and criticisms, the science is catching up with the industry. We will have clinical science soon enough, and there seems to be an overwhelmingly positive response these days to CBD's efficacy. We've all heard the reports, and luckily, our good friends at Social CBD are raising the industry testing standards. They like to say they are test-obsessed. Social CBD works closely with their suppliers and multiple third-party labs to ensure you are getting exactly the package that they say you are getting. High-quality CBD with 0.0 THC. 
and Social CBD wants you to be skeptical. That's why they put a QR and batch code on every package. This allows you to check all the test results for your product, not general testing, the product, the one, the specific batch you bought. And while Social CBD broad spectrum products are available in a range of formulations, each of which is clearly described so you can make an informed decision without all that hype and promises that sound too good to be true. To learn more, go to drdrew.com slash socialcbd. That is my website, drdrew.com slash S-O-C-I-A-L-C-B-D. For a limited time, you can save 20% at checkout with the code drdrew. Now let's get back to the show. Needles have increasingly become a part of everyday life. Proper disposal is both difficult and expensive. We have the solution. Simpler, safer, affordable, and fulfills the obligation to protect our environment. A single stick with something like this means tracking down the user, it means blood tests for the person's stock, it means possibly medication for an extended period of time. Needle sticks are devastating. No more. Incinerate the needle. Needle goes in this port. It's over. Done. Needle gone. We all have loved ones who use needles. Keep their home safe. Medical offices are loaded with sharps. We are using ancient technology to protect our patients, our staff, ourselves. You know what needle sticks do. You know the cost and the devastation psychologically and physically potentially from a needle stick. Eliminate that completely. Stop using ancient technology. Sand MIDI. It will solve your problems. Find out more at needledestructiondevice.com. Let me get on the phone now a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Gita, I think Vahid, I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly. Website is theketamintrainingcenter.com. Is it Dr. Vahid? Is that correct? Um, almost, Dr. Vaid. Vaid, I beg your pardon. So it yes. looks like I, I was putting some weird uh, non-English sort of interpretation, but I apologize. Uh, Dr. Vade, so let, let's start with, you heard some of the conversation we were getting into regarding the risks and benefits of hallucinogenics, and it is sort of the wild, wild west. Uh, let's start with ketamine, since that's the one that for which there is a lot of objective data and a lot of good clinical experience. Yes, um, thank you very much for having me, first of all. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I work with ketamine a lot. I am a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City. I'm also a psychoanalyst, so I do a lot of psychotherapy. But I'm very involved with ketamine as part of the Ketamine Training Center, which is really uh, a center to teach physicians how to, how to really administer ketamine for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So I do a lot of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Um, so in that way, you have the flexibility to use it as a medication where there's a lot of data and a lot of wonderful results for treatment-resistant depression, depression and anxiety, but also to really shift how we're practicing psychotherapy and it is the one psychedelic that is FDA approved and available and a very interesting, I, good one. I, I think of it more as a dissociative anesthetic than a psychedelic. Am, am I wrong in doing so? No, I think you're right. That's how it's classified and it's been used as an anesthetic for a really long period of time, but it does have psychedelic properties. Mm. And so even though it acts on diff different receptor systems, it does have psychedelic experience. And mm. a lot of us believe that the deeper access to aspects of self and being, as well as the psychedelic experience itself, can have therapeutic value when used in the right context. You know, so, the second setting is critical. Now we and I love what Paulina said about intention. That was you. very thoughtful. Uh, say, say it again if people didn't hear it. That 
that the intentionality. I said I really appreciate. Oh no 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 no! I mean Paulina's statement because we have people kind of coming in and out of the show here. Set and setting is absolutely necessary, but uh, having an intention before and interacting with any drug is important because. It allows you to be purposeful about what you're doing. In addition, something I was thinking about, um, it's really important if you're on medications to research. Uh, How about ask your psychiatrist? Well, ask your psychiatrist first. (laughs) Usually psychiatrists will say no. Well. And then you can research it. I I think actually ketamine, one of the nice things is it has very few interactions with medicines. And when psychiatrists say no, generally it's because a lot of the medicines can block or inhibit the effects of psychedelics, mm-hmm. most psychedelics. But it's I think you're right. The issue is to be responsible, is to be, you know, responsible with the way in which you're using it. And a lot of what you mentioned in terms of your stability and thoughtfulness going into a process is so important and so wise. So, so Dr. Vade, you're sort of uh, the the ketamine story is is pretty well worked out. It works for depression. It just does. There's various different ways of doing it. But you're advocating using a, a throwback to something that was being researched back in the '60s, which was psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, right? And, and I think that's what you're aiming towards. Is that is that accurate? Um, that's right. I'm also a MAPS um, therapist, oh, so I'm very okay. involved with MAPS, which do ketamine, which do psychedelic psychotherapy with MDMA for PTSD. Um, so it's really amazing for trauma. It's also amazing for um, the kind of trauma that brings people into my office for deeper work. And the reason I'm such an advocate is not only because it's a novel antidepressant. Actually, a lot of psychedelics are novel antidepressants with yeah. very few side effects. But more than that, I think the magic in them, from my point of view, or the huge advantage, is that it can really lead to deeper healing and really foundational correction, which is an extraordinary process to really, I think it's just a huge game changer in healing and psychiatry, potentially. uh, give, Give people a little primer on what MAPS is, in case people don't know. Yes, definitely. MAPS is um, an incredible organization, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and they're really being the leader in really promoting psychedelics for healing and a lot of the studies um, which which are leading to hopefully FDA approval of MDMA for assisted psychotherapy. They're also doing some other studies as well, looking at relationships for veterans and even conflict resolution in the Middle East. They're a very extraordinary organization. Yeah, I, I worry about it, clinicians going beyond the clinical, like into sort of social engineering that, that has always gone bad. So it worries me when clinicians yeah. want to do that. But, but, but Understood. yeah, but, but I, I want to drill in a little more. I, I think we're really talking about the therapeutic psychotherapeutic treatment of trauma ultimately right isn't that really where the main focus is here absolutely i think yeah. that pretty much captures the essence of this yeah and and, and, and also the way we think about psychi- in psychiatry about illness and disease and symptom relief and managing symptoms i think it really opens up a different way of thinking about how do we think of trauma how do we think of healing how are we diagnosing people and what's going off with our alignments and our internal connections and external connections. Give, give me those thoughts. What, what, how do you give a little primer on that? How, how are you thinking about it differently now than, say, when you were training in psychoanalysis? Very, well, one of the main things that I see that is so amazing is how much I'm very interested in character and personalities. And I think that that's really the foundations of psychoanalysis and defenses and how much of our energies are pet, 
are placed towards protecting ourselves in in characteristic ways that define us, that really result in us being the characters that we are. And we're all trying to use the best of ourselves to really cope with life and manage. And then invariably, we, there's a cost to that. We get stuck in these um, prisons of our character. And psychedelics really allow us to open that up and access different ways of coping, different ways which are more flexible, more in sync with who we are right now, different um, upgrades of who we are, our sense of identity and self, which is formed in childhood, perhaps with um, not the ideal resources. I mean, I really think it takes a village to raise someone. We don't have that village. And so it's really quite extraordinary. I do think that, you know, psychedelics are extraordinary. I think of the therapeutic relationship being as important oftentimes for this work as the medicine itself to do some of that deeper work, or if not, at least deep thoughtfulness and preparedness enter into and entering into an experience to really access the full potential. I, I, I totally get it because as you both, you and I know that resistance is one of the big problems that we, we run into. And it seems like these are therapeutic tools to help diminish resistance or gain access, open up all those same kinds of words. But let me, let me throw a little challenge out that, that, that where I worry about all this, which is that um, I'm certain you as a psychiatrist, I as somebody working at a psychiatric hospital for many years, saw lots of adverse consequences from hallucinogen use. Now, again, like what? Mood disturbances, personality changes, cognitive changes. And as I told you, in the severe cases where they couldn't even take care of themselves anymore. But, but, but that, that who knows how much they were using and what context and what they were using and all this stuff. So, so there, there's some potential downside. Do, when you start talking about changing the personality, we're really talking about changing the brain. Don't you worry that there might be some process unleashed that we don't fully understand there? Well, I think that um, I don't think psychedelics are for everyone. So I certainly am not an advocate of everyone will get better with psychedelics. So I really think there has to be careful selection of the person. I do see people all the time who really want to try them. And I just feel they don't have the strengths or the capacities at this moment. So I think some of it depends on who are the subjects. You have to have appropriate um, perhaps um, pieces in place to really benefit. And and, and not to be fair, the, the it's got to be people that maybe have failed other modalities and the risks are worth the benefits. Or the benefits are worth the risk, right? Uh, I mean, it, you, want, you will take some more risk with somebody that has recalcitrant. Um, no, I wouldn't even go that far. Actually, I wouldn't say that for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. I don't think it has well, to be Well, not ketamine. I, I, yeah, I'm not thinking about ketamine because ketamine, ketamine, we understand. You know what I mean? We've got the data. I'm, I'm thinking of the things where we don't have the data yet. Even though we have lots of anecdotes, mm -hmm. we don't have the data. I mean, I think the anecdotal evidence on the internet is is the basis for research at this moment. I think that there is a benefit to having the internet and having people it's anecdote, record. But, they, yeah. it's, but it's all anecdotal. I mean, it's not scientific. No. We are getting a lot of the safety studies under our belt, which I think are very important. I mean, it's Good. interesting yeah. with psychedelics because we do have a lot of history and knowledge from previous studies which weren't right. adequate and are being repeated. And we do have so it is one of those interim periods where we are getting some of the date, safety data data which will be very important and very necessary so i do think that's an important piece but I, to your point drew i do really support what you're saying i think that psychedelics need to be carefully evaluated individuals because i have seen 
disasters and difficult outcomes with yeah. even SSRIs yes. when I've given people antidepressants. Sure. So sure. it's not true that psychedelics, though they're safe, will not cause those. I think I see all the time um, people who have been in ayahuasca circles who have invited a psychosis. Yep. And I would say I'm a big advocate of psychedelics for healings and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Yep. But that doesn't mean to say you can't have disastrous consequences when right. used in the wrong context, in the wrong situations, and also sometimes unexpectedly difficulties yeah. arise and they have to be managed. So, so let, me, let me frame it this way, which is that there's no medication that doctors recommend that is not potentially dangerous. All medications are Absolutely. dangerous. They're extra physiology, well, whether it's your hypertension med or your antidepressant, whatever. These are all dangerous chemicals. That's why we're so careful in how we, we try to be careful in how we administer them. And we try to have a ton of science to back us up so we can understand the risk-benefit ratios every time we do it. And I'm used to a lot of that in general medicine. And so when I don't have that, I start to get very worried. I, I It might be the greatest treatments uh, ever conceived for humanity, but... It, in, until the dad is there, I get I get very worried. Let me bring in somebody, a friend, and somebody everyone I think knows. Jane's addiction. He's also from the show Ink Master. None other than Dave Navarro. Dave, you there? Hey, Drew. How are you? Hey, buddy. Good to hear from you. Uh, you hear this conversation? I'm very good to hear from you. That was yes, I have, and I I got to chime in, and I I actually say that based on my own experiences in terms of working with psychedelics of my own. And working in terms of uh, sitting with people in space that were working on their own issues, I've seen it go both ways too. And I think the element that we're missing here is the integration post-journey. Because the journey themselves can open somebody who's very traumatized, who's got a lot of deep, locked-up, stuffed-away darkness. An unexplained journey is going to be even more traumatic for them. And they're even more susceptible to them, given the circumstances. So and I think a lot of the misconceptions. Yeah. I'm sorry? So it'd be re-traumatizing well, rather I than healing. That, yeah. It has, potentially. Potentially. Yeah, I get without it. some kind of somebody in place to help with the integration into their practical lives moving forward. So, for instance, some of the journeys that I've gone on didn't show, they didn't reveal their gifts until six months down the line. Wow. It's not a cure. What I'm saying is journey work has worked for me and I am a proponent and advocate for it myself. However, I believe that it, it requires care. It requires a setting and safety and even a clinician, perhaps a therapist, a trusted circle of people. Yeah. And for me, that way, the safety is there. The likelihood of a traumatic event is is lessened because you've got safety in a circle of people you trust. And then moving forward, having taken notes, having treated this as a clinical journey and, make, and documenting what comes up during the journey and then processing that in therapeutic cognitive, cognitive therapy moving forward, we can then see the meanings and the gifts and the journeys. And I have a lot of friends that make the mistake of going to a friend's house at two in the morning for an ayahuasca circle, thinking it's going to fix all their problems. Right, I, I, and that's when I think we and and that's when I think we run into trouble. And I think the doctor might agree with I, that. I think she will. Before I go back to her, though, uh, two things from you: tell them about your radio show and your documentary. 
documentary? documentary. Well, the documentary is called Morning Sun, and it's uh, it's actually spelled M O U R N I N G S O N, and it's about the tragic murder of my mother and my journey through that. And it's available on Amazon and and every streaming platform. Um, and then, as far as the radio show, Doctor Drew, I I got to tell you, I have I have uh, I've taken considerable steps to eliminate my visibility on the internet. So wow. the radio show is done. Okay. Facebook is done. Twitter is done. Uh, blogs are done. I'm done. I'm done with the internet. Right, so if you want to see pictures of my, if you can, if you want to see pictures of my life on Instagram and that's about it. Right. But, um, yeah, so I've taken a big step back in terms of what's going on today in terms of digital culture. I don't want to be, that's you know, awesome. it's almost like they are trying to crank out these digitally uh, addicted, pharmaceutically addicted little creatures, and I don't want to be one of them. So, there you go. And let's go back, Doctor Vare, Vare, Vade, Vade. I beg your pardon, Vade. You heard what David said. I, I'm interested in your comments. Yeah. I'm sure you agree. I really like what he says. Actually, yeah. I thought it was very well said. The integration part, and that's the psychotherapy part, and safety is the other thing he um, emphasized, which I think is so important, not only in terms of evaluation and risk, but also when you know the person who's supporting you and has a way of actually trying to understand and make meaning of the process with you. And sometimes it is a process, but it really shifts things when I've been working with individuals who have maps and a preparedness of knowing who they are, knowing what's impacted them, having a context, having a therapeutic alliance to in that sit a certain setting to go into a, an experience can be quite an extraordinary healing process. Dave, and a corrective Dave experience. Or Dr. Oh, yeah. What are sort of testing... I, I, Wait, Dave first. Okay. Dave first, yeah. then your question. Dave, go oh. ahead. Yeah, I'm going to oh, let yeah. you go, I, I Dave. Just want to so add. Go ahead. Yeah, because I, I think we're all on the same team, and this is so new, mm -hmm. and this is so experimental. That That's why I feel so many precautions need to be in place, um, because if what we're talking about is opening up new neural pathways, so I agree that that is taking place and that there are studies that show that with psilocybin and guys like Terrence McKenna that you may think are crazy or not, I think that there is some legitimacy to some of his theories. But in any event, if you're opening up new neural pathways, there has to be a way to implement using those new, new neural pathways in your day-to-day -day life. So, for instance, I used, to, I used to spin out on a negative pathway. Every outcome was going to be negative. And after a lot of journey work, my pathways opened up and, oh, there's a possible positive outcome here and I could choose the pathway I go. But it took deep integration to learn how to access those pathways and, and make that choice. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things about these journeys. And I think that, and I have, and, and I, this is irresponsible for me to say, but I have seen people come out of journeys and they're transformed, period, end of story, no integration necessary. And I've also seen a lot of people who are deeply, severely traumatized come out and need lots of integration, and myself being one of them. Yeah, and and the and those ones that are magically changed, I I worry about that. It's like, well, what change? We're talking about brain change, and what you know? Have we? Yeah. Is there untoward change in there somewhere that we just don't detect? I mean, it looks good on the surface, but what have we done to that person's brain? That's all the stuff I worry about as an internist. We don't know, and and yeah. and you're right. And in terms of long term, I don't know. And 
there's one of those kinds of uh, thought process that goes into the overall universal context of this is, hey, man, if they end up a little crazy and a lot happy, you know, what's to stop them? You know what I mean? Yeah, what, what are no, we to I, I stop somebody's happiness? But I, I get that, well, but but well, it's, it's I, you should know that the literature back in the 60s when they were researching this stuff, they'd go, well, they seem like a little more uh, upbeat and caring and empathic people now, so uh, whatever's happening, we like it. It's like, yeah, yeah, but you changed the person. And that's, and, and, and Dr. Vade? What I would say is what I've understood from the process in working with trauma is it's not as if you see transformations of a person shifting like a Jekyll and Hyde story. It really is much subtler than that, no. although the subtlety can be quite profound. What you really see, which can be quite extraordinary, is how much energy is is put in one's character towards protection and, mm. and really survival. And when you see that force, when someone feels safe, to actually be transformed towards not being so focused on their protective self, they wind up actually transforming to being able to look beyond themselves into their brother or their cousins That's or true. their neighbor. Right. And it usually is a transformation where the person will say, this is who I am, generally speaking, when I feel safe. And it's been 10 years since I've been in this mindset or place. It's more who I am, not less who I am. It's that kind of transformation. It. It's not transforming into being another person. Because I do think our natural human condition, when we feel safe, is to be able to not be so me, 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 which I think is just an expression of trying to take care of ourselves and feel better. The feel better might get lost in, I need more. Maybe I'm just feeling empty and hungry because I don't have enough. Perhaps I need a second home. Perhaps I need a different wife. You know, whatever that might look like societally based. It doesn't work, of course. But I think when people feel safe, they well, generally Dr. feel so grateful. Dave? They look to someone else. Hmm? They, yeah, I yeah, if I can chime in, and what I think she's speaking to, and what, I, what I've seen is that, you know, and it's been proven, and I believe this for a fact, that trauma physically lives in the body. Yep. It physically lives as adrenaline. It physically lives, it's held within our musculature, within yep. our spiritual character. Yep. And people walk around miserable with their lives seemingly perfect because they're holding on to old trauma. And I think that sometimes some of these journeys can help access that trauma and lift it and help someone to drop it. And I have seen that happen and seen the weight lifted from them. In other cases, I've seen people be uh, lifted of that very trauma six months, a year down the line, sometimes with multiple sessions. I heard you talk about ketamine, which is a whole whole different thing about treating uh, <clears throat> you know, depression versus opening something up to a new awareness. I think there's a more of a spiritual journey with the psilocybin, with the MDMA, with the ayahuasca for sure. Um, that's just been my experience. But it, it's different for everybody. But I just want to say that to be responsible about this, I'm not speaking about someone who who has worked with, with psychedelics in the, solely. I'm also someone who spent years in therapy, years in programs, years in trying different alternative ways so then when I got to the point of a journey, I had the dialogue, I had the language, I was able to express myself in terms that made sense on a clinical and a psychological level and express myself clearly because I had years and years of working on myself prior to diving into this. I relate to that a lot. I think by the time that I experienced psilocybin, I had been in therapy for six years. And so all of the work that I had done in therapy was sort of extended into my journey. Um, 
Dr. Vader yeah. and Mr. Navarro, I, uh, while you were speaking, I was thinking about how to describe the phenomena. Rather than changing the personality, I think it's more of a change of disposition. Would that be fair to say? Mm. Hopefully. I, I would think for, in, in, yeah. in, in, my, in, in, in my case, it allowed me the option to change my disposition. Mm. You're still not going to, you're not going to give me some, I'm not going to have a journey and wake up a different person that's, that's, you know, I am an empathic person. I'm a sensitive person by nature, but what used to be what's called looping, which is when the brain gets in a traumatic loop and it's only going down one neural pathway and it can only see one negative outcome. When you open up other neural pathways, you are now given the option to react differently to life stressors. Dave, I'm going to let you go, man. I appreciate you spending a little time with us. It's been it's been really cool, and I uh, hope you're well. Anytime, man. Thank right, you. Buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Um, Dr. Vay, let's, let's talk a little bit, a, a couple more specific things. Um, really what we're looking for in trauma therapy is – in integration, would you agree that we're trying? It's not. Dave talked about breaking you know, loops, negative loops, anxiety loops, that kind of thing. Which those sort of circuits obviously are problematic. But I always think about it more as parts of the brain that is inaccessible to flexible regulation by other parts of the brain. And I and I'm wondering if we have any theory, if that's true, if you agree with that. Uh, A, B, how do do we have any idea how these hallucinogenics help with that? I think that, um, I do think it kind of can, I think there's different ways of thinking about this thing, different things we're seeing and conceptualizing it. I do think it can lead to much better regulation, homeostasis regulation, even character regulation, emotional regulation. I mean, I've seen people even on a nervous system level feel more regulated, more able to breathe. It's, it gets to be quite meditative. It can be dropping out of your thinking mind. And meditation, oftentimes, I really try and introduce mindfulness practices, meditation practices. A lot of people who couldn't meditate before because they were too stuck in loops and thoughts feel that they're able to actually break some of those obsessive thinking patterns and can, for the first time, sit and meditate. But it's really dropping out of your thinking mind more into the sensual wisdom and intelligence that resides in the body, mm. which is not just, we all walk around in our heads and minds. And I just want to say one other thing to follow on on the transformation idea or the shifting patterns. I think that, you know, it's such a scary idea. Even when I hear you talk about characters change, that sounds really unpleasant. And that's not what I see in my office. It is much more a sense of really, you know, what I hear all the time is people feeling, wow, I feel more like myself or the process of transformation is more almost like a blossoming into the fullness of one's potential as opposed to being stuck in developmentally immature patterns of behavior or resorting to um, very early young primitive defenses that we all employ under fear and stress or metabolizing trauma that's held in our body or minds that really blocks us, these trauma loops and these kind of um, patterns that we live in that we can't get out of and keep you have, repeating. Do you have a theory? This. you have a theory about what's going on biologically? What do I think is going on? Well, there's a lot of incredible studies looking at the default mode networks, you know, in our brains where you really, how much of our identity, sense of selves um, and characters are really held in these circuitry in our minds, which don't get upgraded. So to actually have a chance to really be out of that for several hours in a different space and see the world in different ways, not defined by these loops, is one, one theory that's on the table, which is quite powerful. I do also think in that space, there's really a potential with the defenses down, 
really to um, in correspondence in the therapy and the human to human relationship have an upgrade in terms of some of those um, capacities, all of which are born out of early you know, child parent relationships. I mean, we come into this world really unable to regulate ourselves, leaning on caregivers. So in that space to actually have a chance to have a redo um, with a therapist who can be a really good parent for 45 minutes. Right. So, so yeah. are you a, so your school of psychoanalysis is relational psychoanalysis. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, and would you just give people, people don't, people get so confused about mental health, uh, work and what what people's training is explain to people what a psychiatrist is and what a psychoanalyst is because they're they're very different they're very different so i'm a psychiatrist which means i went to medical school did four years of residency training in psychiatry at nyu medical center i actually did two years of research subsequent to that and then i did psychoanalytic training which is a whole different training where you have a couple of years of didactics and then many many years way too many probably eight years where i was in analysis myself and also analyzing patients myself with supervision and lectures so that's kind of an internal process kind of like analysis is actually yeah, um, but it really but gives you a deeper it's, it's, sense it's, it's, of right. It's developing yourself. the the care the caretaker the the doctor as a an instrument. You have to be developed as an instrument mm -hmm. of the psychoanalytic process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. It really is making you really able to use yourself in a different way in therapy to be an instrument. Which I think, if you can combine those capacities with this deeper access you have in the deeper field, it can be a winning combination. But I love the. Um, caution and the and the care you're bringing because i do worry about some of the excitement even though i'm very excited about it of it really leading to you know misuse and inappropriate use and a lot of casualties which i think we yeah. saw happen in the 60s which i think yeah. led to the whole movement right. being closed down when there was at the same time a wonderful research happening um showing all sorts of exciting promises and i worry for the same thing happening again out of excitement and enthusiasm Right, and a lot of people are sort of doing it on their own or doing it on the DL. And, See, and, that's and, what I keep thinking but, about. I keep thinking about, you know, the 17-year-old who's in his mom's basement doing psychedelics. That, that, I'm not even talking about that. That's not good. I'm talking about people that are doing it yeah. with so-called therapists or maybe good therapists or I don't know good therapists because we don't, I don't know mm. what's required. There's no guidelines yet, and so it's just, it's just worrisome, that's all. And lots of good results. But, you know, lots of good results being re anecdotally reported. Will they sustain? Will they go for five years, ten years? For the rest, of, I, I, we just don't have that. I guess I, I worry about um, privilege. I mean, obviously, we want to privilege a space in which there's guidance and expertise, but most people don't have access to a ketamine center where they can go. I mean, if you're in the middle of nowhere and you hear that ketamine's cool and you're going to try it, what would your advice be for someone who is going to try it, going to do now, it? Now, let's, let's differentiate. Ketamine for depression is for recalcitrant depression that has failed other therapeutic intervention. Dr. Vade is doing ketamine psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, it's really. Psychotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so ketamine assisted psychotherapy, which is a different process. I also wanted just to say one thing about David Navarro. He did say something about ketamine in his experience not being a very soulful medicine. And I have to say, because um, I work with it a lot, I think that actually ketamine has gotten a bad reputation because it's an anesthetic. And I think so much of it is dose related. It can be a very gentle. I mean, I'm also a big proponent of the low dose versus the high dose range. Right. So it can be quite subtle. It can be 
quite anxiolytic. It can be quite meditative and very soulful. So I just think a lot of it depends once again on how you use these. Some people take heroic doses and that's a whole different experience. And then of course, there's so much lack of knowledge. But I, I do understand your point, Pauline. It's a very good one. People are reading about this and they really want these medicines. And I think a lot of conversations are happening. There is a lot of um, states actually that are looking into decriminalization and trying to be responsible of how do we have environments where people can get care and treatment because there is an underground movement. There's some wonderful underground therapists. There are also some terribly scary underground therapists. And I've met, seen, and see the consequences of both. And it's just really hard as a consumer to really distinguish. I, I, to be fair, as a, as a primary practitioner, I would have trouble knowing, because again, no guidelines. I, I don't know. How do I know Absolutely. someone's the right... You know, can you, would you stay with me for a few minutes and let's take a couple calls about PTSD, which is sort of a trauma related topic. Yes. Uh, do you mind? Absolutely. Thank you. All right, let's, let's get Be into it to. with, uh, this is Michelle who's asking about EMDR and PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder we're talking about. Michelle. Yes. Hi, doctor. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. Go right ahead. You're on. Did we lose okay. you? Okay, um, I've been clean and sober for um, 32 years. Congratulations. And I've been, in, thank you, I've been in a weekly therapy um, for 42 years. Mm. And mm. I have had repeated victimizations for 60 years. So hold on. So, um, so, well, so slow down. So, I, so wait, wait, wait. Slow down. Yeah. Slow down. So, so in spite of so, sobriety and treatment, you had adverse childhood yeah. experience characterized by a victimization. That's your original trauma. Is that correct? Yeah, I've had uh, I'm a, I've had a series of victimizations. No. The most significant that really took me took me out. I was in the battered women's shelter and I witnessed a uh, brutal murder. Okay, and so that's where I got my my PTSD diagnosis. Okay, okay, with, I, I get um, it. The, I get it. Slow down. And and in childhood, what was the big trauma? Big T trauma. Uh, okay, so there's sexual abuse in childhood. There's a huge event in adulthood that tr triggers a, essentially a chronic PTSD. This is sort of how PTSD gets set up. Uh, and mm -hmm. there's and there's what's called and I'm glad we have a psychoanalyst here. There, with, uh, what Dr. Freud would call uh, what do you call it? Repetition compulsion that we now call traumatic reenactments. Dr. Vade, talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, this is exactly what we were alluding to earlier. Um, nice to meet you, Michelle, and I'm sorry to hear your story. That we do, all of us, as people get stuck in these trauma complexes that sometimes we kind of almost get stuck. Freud would call it the repetition compulsion. And I do think you have a lot of support. It sounds like you've done incredible work, but it's very difficult to really... Um, escape from some of these patterns. And I do think that EMDR, which is a whole different process, can really be quite helpful in that in, in, the con, um, in concert with psychotherapy. And this is exactly the picture where some, someone um, like yourself would benefit potentially from the work that we're doing in the study with severe PTSD, with psychotherapy assisted with MDMA, where one really has a chance to almost metabolize the trauma in the safety of a relationship and sometimes really um, let go of some of these really, really difficult patterns that are so ingrained that are very painful to be part of. And so this is, I think, really where psychedelics can be a whole 
new approach, which is quite extraordinary. So EMDR, yes, Michelle, if you have access to that. Okay. Thank you. It's yeah. definitely worth trying. Thank you, doctor. And even ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, I would say, with the right therapist, um, you know, you really can do some trauma work with ketamine, um, but it really is in the context of a really safe relationship. This is where the therapy piece is critical. Right. right. And, and so um, I don't, do you want referrals? I mean, should we put your stuff up on my website if people can come? Um, Thank you. That's very kind. The Ketamine Training Center actually has a link to okay. physicians um, that we've trained over the uh, throughout the U.S. Okay, so the ketamintrainingcenter.com? Yes, that's right. Okay, and you use an interesting phrase. You talked about metabolizing trauma. I, I'm first. I heard about metabolizing trauma. I probably was Peter Fonagy talking about this, and and he always talked in terms of. The, the psychoanalyst receiving the trauma and giving it back in a metabolized form. Is, is that what you mean? Or is it literally you're doing something to the brain with the psychedelics? Well, it's really interesting because some of these processes that Peter Fonagy and analysts have thought about for years, or even the function of the mother in infant child development, it's it really opens up the process to happen in a very interesting way in the context of the long psycho psychedelic psychotherapy session, be it with ketamine or be it with MDMA. And it probably is a mixture of both. I think in the safety, sometimes it is the affects, the states are tolerated by the therapist and then able to be taken back in. But I think that's one thread. The other thread is the person oftentimes in the safety. I've seen this with veterans in the safety where they are actually have the amygdala turned off, they can actually review what happened in the battlefield or what happened in their childhood. Oh, so it's almost sharing the experience, going through it in great so detail. So it's almost like, almost like a, that's sort of the way we treat phobias, right? Is being able to get into them and tolerate it without anxiety. Exposure yeah. so, kind of exposure therapy. It's, yeah, but exposure it's without. It's really like a re-experiencing. Yeah. It's like a re-experiencing and it really feels yeah. as if you're, you know, as the, as the therapist, sometimes it can be quite actually overly intense to go yeah, through yeah. the experience and right. and also a privilege to play that role right. but it's kind of extraordinary because you feel like they have a chance of really being able to process go through it let go of it and that is really quite a different process than an analytic process even right it's and almost so, an so, extension so so right yeah so there's a lot packed into what she just said there right yeah uh and that is an example of her using herself and body and brain as an instrument to receive the trauma and experience it with the patient which is the part we were kind of talking about there and then offering it back in a metabolized form which again is this the, the process of analysis in a weird way but go ahead but i guess i mean obviously that is the ideal condition right you have someone who can help you through your traumatic events but i just i well, immediately jump to people who do not have access i, to I understand that. we'll talk about that in a second but 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 that's part of the problem with getting people into trauma therapy they resist coming in because they don't want to revivify the trauma and it's hard to convince them that that's not going to be a re-traumatizing process which and it can I mean, be it oftentimes can be very traumatizing to even I've had patients come to see me well, but, who don't want to talk about their trauma because they'll but, get but worse. But I would argue, right. But I would argue that in skilled hands, you won't let that happen. 
Absolutely. That's right. correct. Right. And also the right conditions. Right. 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 So what do we do about the lack of access to mental health care in America, which is I mean, what you keep a, alluding a to? Yeah, and, problem. And, and it's a massive oh, issue. And, know, and by the way, we have a shortage of, hang on, we have a shortage of psychiatrists. We have a shortage of psychiatric beds. We have shortage of resources. We have an IMD exclusion for the chronically mentally ill. We have almost nobody treated, I, I trained like Dr. Vade. I, I'm, I'm jealous of your training. It's rare to find, you know, what you, <laughs> I, and you know what I'm talking about, the, the combo of, of treatments, of, of training that you've had. What do we do? Paulina won't let us go. This well, it's not even just that. It's more of the, you know, I'm thinking of like the 15-year-old in Wisconsin who has, it's it's meth or ketamine, you know? It's either or. The, the fact is there are armies of people out there. there. There really are. But I'll let Dr. Vade see what her opinion is on this. Well, I think we're going to have to come up with a hybrid solution, obviously. We are going to have to do something to make care available. But I would say, if I'm going to go back to psychedelics particularly, and this is, you know, if you bear with me, because this doesn't really answer the the uh, access to care, although I would say the Ketamine Training Center, where we actually have a foundation to try and offer access to care for lower fee care. So we are trying to make an effort to and, try and, and address There's a lot of that out there. There's a lot important. of, if you, if you do your work, there's that. a lot of stuff out there. But go, but anyway, go, I understand what you're saying. Eddie, you're right. Right now it starts off with being, this is a very new treatment. It's a very expensive treatment. And it's not really affordable for most individuals. And of course, paradoxically, people with trauma can't work. So they're even going to be people who need it more. So all of that is true. My concern, though, is what I hear a lot with psychedelics is we need to scale it. We need to dispense it and that becomes right. the pressing number one issue right. Right. and I think that that need is there and that thinking is correct the problem is we haven't worked out what is the best way to deliver it how can right. we do it in the most conscientious way which is probably going to be the most detailed expensive cost and affordable cost inefficient in every single way and i still feel to sort it out even if it makes it the most complex sessions my sessions are three to four hour long that's Oof. not very affordable Oof. that's not very safe you know i make i'm probably the only ketamine therapist who loses money on ketamine sessions as yeah, opposed to sure. making money I but you it. can see how the thoughtfulness the care it's it's such beautiful work yeah. and once we understand how to do it that's when i think you can see where can we cut cut it out? Where can we actually then find what are the most important pieces? Where can we then find different ways of packaging it to make it more affordable? But unless you, if you skip that that step, I think you wind up actually sometimes missing out on the most important ingredients and perhaps shifting it to being a really good antidepressant. Which I have to say, psychedelics are really good antidepressants, and I have think, no problem think. using them that purpose. We, we think. We think. But, well, a lot of them, um, like ketamine, I think we can say confidently yes, is, yes, and, and the data is very promising with the yes. others. And my pet peeve is when people are doing ketamine-assisted or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and they imagine they're doing the psychotherapy, and they tell themselves they're that, but they're not even aware that, in fact, it's much more of the biological antidepressant effect, which I think is fine as long as you know what you're doing and the right. pieces have been sorted out. Um, when there's a confusion, that's what I find really actually... Um, that's my pet peeve. I feel let's know what we're doing. Let's offer several different treatments and let's get better at then finding changing policies and coverage. And because this really shifts the way in which mental health is delivered and even diagnosed potentially. I have a caller from Japan who wants to ask about psychedelic and PTSD and, and cannabis too, apparently. So uh, Scott, go ahead there. Dr. Drew, thank you for taking my, my call. Um, I've been listening to a lot of, uh, 
And I've been learning a lot too with the uh, talk with the psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Bade. Yep. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. First of all, I want to say that uh, EMDR uh, is a great thing. I've done EMDR and it's a little scary at first. It draws out a lot of bad memories, but in the long run, it's been, it's worked well for me. It can be intense. It can be very intense. It is. Um, but I, I highly recommend it. Um, I, I live in Japan, so it's kind of hard for me to get access to this stuff. And, um, I'm actually, uh, an army veteran. I've done one tour in Iraq and I suffer from PTSD. Uh, marijuana has worked for me a lot, but I am interested in some of the other stuff. Um, I used to be a pretty heavy drinker and I used uh, kind of, you know, uh, push back the demons, I guess. And, um, I've been, I've stopped drinking. I, of course, done some of the other stuff that I need to do better, uh, diet exercise, but I, I, I still feel like I need something else to kind of get me out, um, to make me a better person. And I was very interested in psychedelics and, uh, the process of getting started. Um, obviously in Japan, it's very illegal, but thinking about moving to the States to try it out even. All right. Let's see what Dr. Vade says. Well, I think the first step is to, you know, it's not even that available in the U.S. Right now, the only um, medicine of this nature that is available would be ketamine if you're going to do it legally, which, um, you know, I think probably is the right way to go, particularly when you're talking about the layers of trauma you've you've um, dealt with with EMDR. And it, you really, you're really engaging in a process. So I think you have to, you know, it is coming. I think it's not widely available, but I think a lot is going to change in the next few years when we know more. And a lot of the medical establishments, Yale, John Hopkins, NYU, um, Harvard, a lot of the big institutions are developing psychedelic centers. So it's really unfortunate that it's not here yet, but I think things are going to change in the next few years. And I do think to um, speak to Dr. You know, to what Dr. Drew is saying, I think everyone is really, it's long necessary and needed, but there's going to be a lot of growth and knowledge in the next few years. So to really do your research and maybe stick with what's safe and find the right context. In addition to what is safe, I'm curious as to what tactics we can employ in order to reduce harm, redu reduce harm. so harm reduction tactics, like testing kits, um, obviously set and setting is very important, intentions going into it, but how do we protect ourselves if we choose to engage with these substances? So, so let me, I'll have her answer that just quick. Let me just say, I think, Dr. Vade, I think UCLA has a couple of studies underway with uh, end-of-life dread, end-of-life anxiety, and I think mood, too. So UCLA Department of Psychiatry may have some stuff going on. You and NYU have some studies. Yeah. So does Yale University. And yeah. MAPS is the, a really right. good resource because they MAPS. have a lot of PTSD studies with yeah. many centers all over the United States. So you should really look up that if you're planning on coming to check out what's available in a research context. So Pauline is asking a question of how, how to, if you are going to do this, how to do it. Is, is there a safe way if you're not in a therapeutic relationship or don't have access to, to care? Pauline, I, I would say that if you're, 
I think that's what you're asking. Well, I would say, you know, the two options really that I can see that are available is to do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and look for a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy therapist, or if you really need to, you need to go to an underground therapist. And some of the underground therapists are extraordinarily good, um, so, and, but you'd have to do your research and really take some time getting to know a person and, and finding out where that context would be. There are some centers coming up, you know, synthesis and um, you mentioned being in Amsterdam, have a program where you can receive psilocybin truffles. They're not um, legal, they're legal because of a scheduling issue. And so you can receive psilocybin, which is legal in that context with, with experienced facilitators and a lot of supervision and a medical doctor there. So there are contexts, but once again, it is that one high dose kind of experience, which I think you have to be very careful about if you're dealing with trauma, because it is the relationship, it is the integration, it is the preparedness. It's much more of a process, not a one shot deal for most individuals. Um, but I think really be careful, ask around, try and talk to other people who have worked with that individual so you can really have a sense, try and ask what they're, and become very educated yourself on what the process is so you really know what you're getting into. So she's saying no outside of a therapeutic relationship. Yeah, that's that's so, what I thought. Yeah. But, and, and, but we've learned why truffle pigs go after truffles. Anyway. <laughs> and also, like a lot of psychedelics. The other thing I would say is that um, a lot of kids have, for decades, been playing with psychedelics with great experiences yeah. and having wonderful experiences. I'm always amazed in my office when I ask people psychedelic history how many people have been had tried LSD when they were in college 30 years. And so these medicines have always been available, even if they've been um, un, un, uh, restricted. And that itself, even though people have always reported if not having a bad experience, a very cool experience, a very beautiful experience, that alone does not seem to result in therapeutic growth or change. So I think you have to be careful with just having a great experience. If it could be wonderful, is that really a therapeutic experience or is it just a really nice experience that nice you've memory. had? Therefore. Yeah. Therefore, recreational, which I'm not even being disparaging about recreational use. I'm just saying you have to distinguish between the two. Okay. So, and, and you know, the, the psychiatric part of her and the internist part of me, we are drilled with do no harm, do no harm, do no harm, do no harm. And, I'm just and, thinking and, like, And, and so you know, do the, no harm. It's, it's hard to say do something that could be harmful unless we know, okay. we know how to do it. That's so all. you're never going to be like, okay, here's the testing kit for this thing. I mean. Well, I, you, you are because uh, you're. For instance, people run uh, tents for LSD bad trips, you know, at concerts, at raves. And no, things, that was right? at Woods at Woodstock. Well, I believe. yeah, Woodstock they had a tent like that, but but most yeah. many raves have things like that. So because uh, no, they talk, do at Bonnaroo. Talking people down and, is, is. Go ahead, Doctor Ray. And also at Burning Man, there's a maps tent for harm reduction. So people have bad trips, and you know, it's really important to have some of those measures in place. But I think you have to be really careful and also particularly with young adults you don't know what you're going to bring out in young adults so that's the other issue a lot of kids have great experiences but oftentimes even with marijuana i do see individuals it's not the marijuana itself necessarily but it can bring out a capacity or a tendency which has was waiting in the wings probably right. would have emerged anyway maybe, uh, maybe schizophrenia not. or something yeah. or like but you know you know when you bring these things out early they tend to be harder to treat they tend right. to be more protracted they're more difficult they had it not come out or had it come up four years later four years with a developing brain can change a picture 
Right. So are you saying wait until your frontal lobe's closed at 25 it, to try? It, it's a little more complicated than that even. It's not about the frontal lobe so much as the, the brain development generally and the, and the way mental illness manifests early and in the intensity and maybe the drugs are making it worse. We don't know. Again, the we don't know part is the, is the difficult part. But Dr. Vade, you've been extremely generous with your time and we appreciate it so, so much. Thank you uh, for having me. Uh, again, where people will find you at the Ketamine Training Center. Is that correct? The Ketamine Training Center? Yes, that's our training center. On there, there should be a link to providers who are well-trained in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy across the United States. I, I hope this was rewarding for you. It was rewarding for us to, to hear Thank something. you so much. Yeah, we really Wonderful to be part of the conversation. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and, and again, I want to state... It's not your everyday training that she represents. And so the, the combination of psychiatry and psychoanalysis is a pretty powerful combo. And I, and I uh, you know, if you want ultimate training, that's the ultimate training. <laughs> so congratulations. That's a lot of you. Yeah, Thank I you. know. I know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, not everyone, for sure not everybody has access to that. Right. That's I, what I, I mean. I can't even get that for people. I yeah. can't find that. So. All right, Dr. Thank Vade, you for Dr. recognizing that. I, I, I believe me, I know. Uh, Dr. Vade, we'll let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Thanks. So Bye-bye. it's just it's just us now. Wrap it you up. You and me and me and you too for tea. So what are you, what are your final thoughts? What do you, you um, heard, you I feel a like a criminal. Uh, Why? Why? You know, it, it, you feel like a criminal. I don't know. It's like weird when your dad is Dr. Drew and you like live your entire life in fear that if you go to jail you won't get bailed out because dad said on well, the news I said that, that he as a, I said do that it. in high school. You yeah. So. So you're saying you would bail me out now? Uh, if it was if don't travel with any of these things you've been talking about. I might have trouble bailing you out if you do something totally dumb. But uh, if uh, you're not an addict, I would help you, yes. If you were part of... I don't think I'm an addict. No, and, and if it were... The, the whole point was about addiction, is that in a setting of addiction, you have to bring the consequences to bear. Right. And this is not... A, we're not talking about that. So. I, I guess... I keep thinking, because obviously we're talking to people who have access to therapeutic settings in which they can engage with these substances ethically and mindfully. And I'm thinking about the majority of people who, you know, Joe's cousin has some LSD, let's do it. You know, how do we how do we combat that? How do we, I almost want like a, a, a step-by-step, you know, this is the first thing you do. You set your intentions. One, number two, you yeah, test you're, it. You're, you know? I, I would go to maps on, on that. I'm sure they have some stuff in that there. See for, for a clinician, you just, you, you, you're never, you're never going to say do it, but you can also, it's, it's very dicey to be giving ways to do it. Uh, you know that makes sense. Yeah, and, and t- until we know what we're talking about, and we just don't have that data yet, we right. just don't have it, and it, so it's it's it. it and I and Dr. Vade had a certain amount of confidence with it because she used it a lot, and she's in that world, and she's up on the research, and it's it's. But it's still, it's 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 very dicey. It's very dicey landscape, and it, it makes me nervous. So that that's why I I can refer you someplace like Maps. I'm sure they have resources for that kind of thing to advocate. I, other than the you know safe environment and all that stuff we've already talked about. I don't, I don't think we can. Beautiful. Uh, next live show is next week. So do sign up at drdrew.tv. You'll get a message when we are streaming live again. You can sign up with your email, but the best option is sign up with your phone number too because the alerts are quick and easy and no worries about spam because the phone alerts are only for letting you know we're going live and taking calls here, usually Sunday afternoon. Subscribe to our podcast, please. Uh, Ask Dr. Drew is now available as a podcast. So make sure you subscribe to this and all our other shows on iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you listen. Uh, me and Adam every day. I have a Dr. Drew sort of more, it's a little more, 
intellectual topics, and then we have You Live, which is more addiction, and we have a daily dose, which we will try to keep doing on a daily basis, just a few-minute Q&A thing around the uh, the scroll that you see on uh, Periscope and Facebook. Um, today, I've been watching you guys, and I appreciate the comments there. Uh, you said, a lot of you are just saying thanks. Are they talking about how pretty I am? How some people are, and uh, <gasps> how Maps is thank cool. You. And you uh, thank and the Yeah. Uh, so let me keep, uh, saying here, um, uh, I try to get as many questions as possible and, and I'm, and I'm do, going to do a special show in a few minutes where I just take questions. So do hang on if you want to. We have three people still on the line, but if you're I on know, the line, stay there yeah. because we're going to stop the show and then we're going to start a caller show. May right. I, uh, put my socials and everything out? Can I, now I'm ready to, absolutely. Right, to read my resume. Let's do it. Hello. My name is Paulina Pinsky. You can find me. At, at M-I-Z-Piggy-1-1-1 on Instagram. This reminds me of the beginning Twitter. of Drunk History. <laughs> Hi, I'm Duncan Trussell. Oh, and, and don't today forget we're going to talk about, about dolphins. Oh, oh yeah. Well, oh, we didn't can, even talk about consent I know. At all. Well, That's why, why you... I've been sitting here being like, when are we going to talk about it? Well, maybe you should come on the next show and we'll talk well, about no, it. Well, no, we got five minutes or so. Do you want to just, because we've also been told. You didn't really get We've to... also been told not to talk much about this. We've oh. been instructed specifically. Well, they're writing a book. No, we've been sorry, and specifically not, not to, to talk about it. Oh. But we can talk about the we can talk about the importance of consent and how you and I are thinking a lot about that. Yeah, I think um, as it our task in this moment is to think about consent in both a sexual context and an everyday context, and the ways in which we identify with ourselves dictate how we identify with other people. Um, and so, ultimately, what I have been thinking a lot about is, you know, how do I consent to everything right right we're, we're, we're thinking we've been working a lot together on how consent is kind of a, a largely overlooked topic oh absolutely and that to some extent the me too movement has pushed it forward and it's something that's needed to be talked about for a long time uh and it's long overdue and it's suddenly become relevant in almost every context every context i mean yeah. now people can get sick of it and this is part of the things we're also talking about is some people may just not want it right and then how do we compassionately deal with you guys too I mean, I think the the ultimate uh, issue is compassion. Yes. Um, how do we relate to ourselves? Are we kind to ourselves? Are we respectful respectful of ourselves in addition to how we interact with other people? Um, how you treat yourself is going to dictate how you treat other people. The mm. kinder you are to yourself, the kinder you will be to others. Mm. Um, I mean, that's the sort of life philosophy that I maintain. Interesting. Um, I think that's true. But, but – I would also argue that uh, compassion is an active process that people have to practice. All this stuff, stuff has to be practiced, practiced, practiced for people to get comfortable with it too. Empathy. So, is empathy that something that can be developed or is it an innate? No. Empathy is something that comes late. It's, it's, something, it's one of the last things that we develop as human beings. It's the highest order of our development, in fact. And it, it's something we develop in our interpersonal exchanges. And we have to be the object of empathy in order to develop empathy, interestingly. So that's that's what Dr. Vade was kind of talking about. That's what She's tr an expert in that. That's, right. her, that's what she does, is uh, she uses her whole body to empathize with other people and metabolize that and give it back to them in a form they can tolerate. Bottom line, everybody should be in therapy. Excuse me. There's a call for Paulina that Lindsay's oh. pointing out that okay. we should take. All right, we'll take All it right. before we wrap this thing up. Uh, Nicole, go ahead there. Hi. Hi, Dr. Drew and Paulina. Hello. Um, it's been fun to watch you guys uh, interact this way. Uh, I had a question. Um, I grew up with uh, a pastor for a father and a social worker as a mother. 
And uh, I was just wondering, Paulina, what you're, uh, I was kind of laughing at you not getting bailed out. My parents said the same thing about <laughs> uh, things that we might do and, and just being nervous your whole life about messing up and messing up the family name and all of those things. So I was just wondering what your experience has been let, like let with say, Dr. Drew. I, I don't want to, I don't want that. to, I don't want to step in the way of whatever Pauline is going to say, but we have a mechanism in place that you can do. You'd go on a podcast with your father and just let it all hang out <laughs> and put, put it all out there. I've coped but, by <laughs> being turned into this. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually, I, I've spent a lot of time writing and thinking about this because I think it actually shaped a lot of my character growing up without it ever being explicitly stated. But I think, you know, having your father be a, a public figure in any regard, whether it's your community or the globe, puts a special light on you, right? How they, what they preach is going to be exemplified in you um, is, is the pressure that I felt. It also doesn't help that my mom looked at me in the third grade on the way to ice skating practice and said, when you lose your virginity, your father's going to broadcast it on the radio. So, you know. Did there, I do that? No. Ma, n- uh, did I do I that it? I know that. Okay, I don't I know. Didn't do it. I, just, I didn't tell you. I, know. I was like, I, didn't know. I, I wasn't expecting you to. So Yeah. So I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to embody the sort of. Uh, I don't want to call you puritanical in your views or that you're a teetotaler because I respect your work and I think that you've shaped the conversation surrounding addiction in this country in a way that is insurmountable Um, and so I feel a lot of pride for that but as a kid you know I didn't drink I didn't do drugs and I expected everyone around me to abide to that and that did not make me very popular um so Same. yeah and so I was like this goody goody following the rules and then once I hit college I was like fuck it Oh, can I say that? Mm-hmm. Well, Facebook will decide. So. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg, try me. Um, <laughs> so there was a, a lot of pressure I felt, you know, and then also like People Magazine would come into our house and like take photo shoots of our families. And so we would have to portray this perfect family model that didn't necessarily feel natural, but also was part of the Dr. Drew brand. And so this is actually, um, I'm working on a memoir and so this will be explored a little bit more slowly when I have the time to sit down and actually work on that book. Um, but ultimately it did feel like this shadow over me my entire life. And then I moved to the East coast and everybody was like, Dr. Drew. And I was like, yes, I will stay here. No one knows. Uh, Has there been a point where even though you felt that pressure, that what I've had a problem with is reconciling things that I've learned in my life um, with things that I wanted to rebel against, but I, I, I ultimately have found, okay, they were right about that. Mm. Okay, this is the best way to live my life. Or, or how, do you believe that you, in a way, such as your drug usage, choice to use uh, other substances, has that fellow fallen away from uh, what you were taught? I think the voice of my conscious in my head when it surrounds like drug and alcohol is just my father's voice, which is a very nerve wracking voice to have in your head, right? I mean, you have the leading expert in the country in the back of your skull, your half of your DNA is his. I think it will be a lifelong relationship uh, and, and sort of testing. I think um, for me, 
Um, I think that my parents are more uh, dedicated to an aesthetic and diet plan and lifestyle that I can't subscribe to because of my eating disorder history. And so that is something that will always be challenging for me. And this may be the first time I've really articulated this, but it's, it's very difficult when I come home and someone's on a diet and I'm not, right? And the implication is that I should be on a diet, I'm the fat one, I'm the unloved, so on. And I, I know that that mostly is in my head and that is not necessarily reality, but I think that in, in, the, in the primary way I have diverged from my family is perhaps in the way I view my body and the way in which I feed my body. Um, and so I think that that's a place which is an ongoing conversation, right? I think I'm, I have the privilege in, in being able to continue a conversation with my parents and have them listen. Um, but ultimately, I think the the main place that I find like uh, a difference is my health in every size ideology and my body positivity. Um, and then I, I do drugs sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's that. So God bless well, you. Well, you might be my spirit white girl because uh, we have a lot of the same experiences and the same... Uh, that, is, that is fantastic. <laughs> I love Very that. Kind. Uh, all right, Nicole, I appreciate you calling in and thanks for being a part of this. Thank you. Thank all you. Right. Thanks, Paulina. Bye nice bye. to see you. Likewise. Or hear you. That is awesome. I love Nicole. Okay, everybody. Uh, our last reminder, um, share with your friends, sign up at TV. You've got an email or test, text probably. Uh, we are uh, going to be taking calls uh, soon again and coming back and just doing just Q and A kinds of stuff. Uh, somebody told you to pose or take a pose or something. No, or, that my, that my one of your friends. Told oh, it's your to. spirit told you to. Um, um, uh, they liked you. They want you back. Uh, spirit white girl hit home with a lot of people. <laughs> uh, courageous for sharing your story. I, I like to believe that I am an active ally of of trying to disinvest from whiteness and you know. <laughs> Today's show produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. Call screener Lindsay K. Floyd. She's the young lady you're talking to on the other side. And as I said, um, we're live again next week, and we'll try to do a daily dose again tomorrow, though it's only, I think, right, only on Periscope. Is that correct? We're working on that, honey. Oh, we might be <laughs> able to do more Periscope. Periscope. We, that's a good one to start with if, if we have a day off from... Are we the modern Von Trapp family? Uh, I can mm. sing. <laughs> There's a college on a hilltop. Thank you to Dave Navarro. Thank you to Dr. Gita Vade. Thank you to the Ketamine Training Center. <laughs> uh, thank you to Duncan Trussell, buddy. We'll see you at the... Uh, Dave. Did you say thanks? I said Dave. Uh, look for Dave. At we want to have Dave back on our show. Ink Master. Look for Duncan on his podcast, Duncan Trussell Family, our podcast. Follow me on Instagram. Uh, and be sure to please, uh, so we can keep doing these things, check out uh, Social CBD. You get 20% off at checkout if you go to drdrew.com slash social CBD. Use the code Dr. Drew. Needledestructiondevice.com. Get one of those needle destruction devices if you're a diabetic or you're running an office. We have needles. We have a couple different devices there, and they are awesome. I'm so excited to be a part of that. I'm excited to be a part of this and excited to it's excited you were here today. This was fun. It really was. And uh, high five. And, uh, we'll see you next time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. Today's call screener is Lindsay K. Floyd. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast. If you have a question, go to drdrew.tv. That is D-R-D-R-E-W dot TV and sign up to receive an alert next time I am taking calls. 
No spam, just quick alerts when I'm streaming live. Also, you can text your question to me right now at 984-237-3739, and I'll see if I can help you out on one of our future shows. Check out our other podcast and watch the full-length HD video versions anytime at drdrew.com. This is just a reminder that the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care or medical evaluation. This is purely for educational and entertainment purposes. I'm a licensed physician with over 35 years of experience, but this is not a replacement for your personal physician, nor is it medical care. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 anytime, 24-7, for free support and guidance. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 